morning to our viewers online as well. And I too wish you happy Mother's Day. I want to start out with a story. So it was 1976. You can do the math. I was four years old. Uh, my father, you've, you've heard me say this already, was a Navy man. My mother, uh, a stay-at-home mom. This, uh, this was before they got divorced and before my sister was born. We were living in Charleston, South Carolina at the time. I woke up one morning. My father had already left for work. My mother was still asleep. And I looked out the window, and I saw the kids walking down the street toward the bus stop. And I decided I would go out the front door, and I would follow them. So I'm four at the time. I walked down the street. I'm wearing one of those one-piece pajamas, you know, the kind that, like, covers your feet as well. So I followed the kids to the bus stop, and I didn't know what to do when the bus came and took the kids away, so I kept walking. I walked and I walked, and I even picked up this little plastic race car from someone's yard, and I kept walking. Eventually, the police picked me up, and they, they took me to the police station and questioned me. They plied me with Oreo cookies, trying to get information from me. But every time uh, they asked me, what's your name, son? I would say, Peter Pan. <laughs> Meanwhile, my mother had woken up, uh, was frantically searching the house, um, all around the house, all around the neighborhood, wherever she thought a four-year-old boy might be. She called my dad at work, he came home, and they began to drive around the neighborhood looking for me. Eventually, uh, after driving through the whole neighborhood, they drove to the police station, and there I was, happy and oblivious to how upset my parents were, sitting there eating my Oreo cookies and holding that red plastic race car that I had picked up from someone's front lawn. On our way out of the police station, a reporter asked my parents if they could uh, write a story for the paper. And so the following morning, on the front page of our, of our local newspaper was a story titled, Peter Pan Takes Morning Stroll. <laughs> that is a true story. So today's message is Breakthrough of Freedom and Authority. Just like my parents, Jesus has a heart for saving and rescuing his children. Today we'll be talking about Jesus' heart and his kingdom strategy for saving and rescuing people who may be hurt, who may be lost, who may be in danger and not even realize it. So I mentioned this a few weeks ago, the world is not as it seems. There's a reality around us that we are rarely, if ever, aware of. Christianity is not just about going to church, being a nice person, doing good deeds. We live in a world at war. It's all around us. And even though we don't tend to think of it that way, uh, the birth of Jesus was an act of war. It was an invasion. The enemy knew it and tried to kill him as a baby. 
All of Jesus' life was marked with battle and confrontation. He cast out demons. He rebuked illnesses. He rebuked a storm. He confronted the Pharisees. With a shout, he raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus died, he descended to the place of the dead and he obtained the keys to death in Hades. He ascended to heaven. And when he comes back, Jesus will come mounted on a steed of war with his robe dipped in blood, armed for battle. Amen. War is not just among the many themes of the Bible. It is the backdrop for the whole story, the context for everything else. God is at war. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 34, he said, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Paul says in Ephesians 6, to arm yourselves, and the first piece of equipment that he tells us to put on is the belt of truth. Now, certainly that has to do with being honest, but it's also the need to get a good, clear view of reality. The reality that there is a war that is being waged over our very lives. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees the universe is at war. So until we come to terms with war as the context of our days, we will not understand our life we will misinterpret 99% of the things happening to us and happening all around us. We know who will win in the end because Jesus will return triumphant, but in the meantime, the enemy's doing everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy as many people as he can before that happens. For now, life is a bloody battle. You won't understand your life you won't see clearly what has happened to you or how to live out the rest of your days until you see it as a war. Do you want to wake up and see the world as it truly is? Paul said in Ephesians 5.14, he said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You live in a world at war, and you must fight for your life and fight for your heart. The enemy's plan is first to assault your heart. He does it with temptation, deception, distractions, lies, idols, materialism, greed, pride, lust, and more. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Your life is a story of a long, brutal assault of your heart by the enemy who knows who you could be, and he fears it. 
Let me explain. Just as the world is not as it seems, you are not what you think you are. There is a glory in you that the enemy fears. And he is hell-bent on destroying that glory before you can act on it. We've heard a lot about original sin in the church, but we've not heard much about original glory. Original glory came before sin, and it is ingrained much deeper into our nature. We were crowned with glory and honor. There is something in almost every man, it began when you were a little boy, that longs to be brave. There is something in almost every woman, it began when you were a little girl, that longs to be beautiful. Why is that? Because we remember deep in our being that we were once more than we are now. That glory is the object of a long and brutal war. The enemy doesn't want you to see it. You'll hear this a lot when Christians talk about themselves. I've been guilty of saying it too. I am just a sinner saved by grace. Or there isn't anything good in me. It is a common mindset that we are all no good wretches, that we are ready to sin at a moment's notice, that we are incapable of goodness and far from any kind of glory. Let me tell you today that that is not biblical. Hey, most people, when they say this, they're thinking of Paul when he said in Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So notice the distinction. He doesn't say there is no good in me. He says that in my flesh nothing good dwells. The flesh is the old nature, the sinful self, the part that has been crucified with Christ. The flesh is the very thing that God removed from our hearts when he circumcised us by his spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He doesn't say I'm incapable of good, but rather in my flesh dwells no good thing. Yes, we battle with sin, but that sinful nature that you battle is not who you are. Paul says in Romans 7, 17, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. He makes the distinction. This is not me. This is not my heart. Listen to the way Paul talks about us. He says in Philippians 2, 5, and 8, 5 through 16, or 15 and 16, he says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. We are supposed to shine. Jesus said, let your light shine before others. So all this groveling and the self-deprecation done by Christians is just shame posing as humility. Shame says, I'm nothing to look at. I'm not worth anything. I'm not capable of any goodness. Humility says, 
I bear a glory, but it is a reflected glory, a grace given to me by God. Your story does not begin with sin. It begins with a glory given to you by God. Your story does not begin in Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve. Your story begins in Genesis 1 when God created man and woman in his image and he proclaimed, it is very good. None of us would argue that God is not glorious. Certainly he is. Well, you are his offspring, his child created in his image. God created the heavens and the earth, the swirling galaxies, the stars, the seas, the animals, every form of bird and plant and insect and creature. And he exclaimed that it was good. But it wasn't until after he created mankind. And that includes you. That he exclaimed, it is very good. Your original glory was greater than anything that has ever taken your breath away in nature. When he created you, God endowed a glory upon you that all creation pales in comparison to. It is a glory that is unique to you, much in the same way that your fingerprint is unique to you. And you know it. Somewhere deep inside of you, you've been looking for it your whole life. You, remain, you remember faintly that you were once more than what you've become. Your story didn't start with sin, and thank God it won't end with sin. It ends with glory restored. Romans 8.30 says, those he justified, he also glorified. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you have been transformed and you are being transformed. You've been given a new heart, and now God is restoring your glory. He is bringing you fully alive. St. Irenaeus, he's a, he was a second century Greek bishop, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Psalm 16.3 says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. We must awaken to the reality of who we really are. The enemy does not want you to know this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, a new creation, you have a glory in you, and you have a new authority in Christ. So let me explain what I mean by authority. So think about a police officer, all right? The authority of a police officer doesn't come from their experience, doesn't come from their rank, doesn't come from their training necessarily. Whether that police officer has been on the force for 30 years or this is their first day, he has the backing behind him, the full authority of whatever city, whatever state he represents. Similarly, every Christ follower has the full authority of Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, over the enemy, over all of his legions. Jesus said in what's called the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
So Jesus has authority over everything, including Satan and his minions. We learn in Mark 16, 19, that after he was taken up into heaven, Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father. Mark 16, 19 says, when the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Okay, so Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we learn from Paul in Ephesians 2, 6, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This means that we approach spiritual warfare from a position above the forces of evil. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.3, we will one day judge the angels. Because we are in Christ, we are already in a position over and above the powers of darkness. Not only that, not only do you have full authority because of Jesus in you, you also have the Holy Spirit living in you. 1 John 4, 4 says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? If we are in Christ, we are seated with him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms with a position of authority over the powers of darkness, and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Okay, so in scary movies, which I haven't seen in a while, (laughs) that's an inside joke for you people watching online. All right, so in scary movies where they show an evil spirit uh, tormenting a family, It's funny, but sad that they usually do everything but what they should do, right? So, like, they'll they'll get a Ouija board out, and then they'll, like, try to talk to the dead uh, spirit. They'll they'll consult a psychic or someone who studies paranormal science. Um, And these things always just make it worse, right? Um, And that's why the Bible forbids these things. I always wonder in these movies, like, where are the Christians? Like, why don't they get some Christian friends... And come over and pray and read scriptures out loud and call on the name of Jesus, right? Take authority over those evil spirits and cast them out. If they did that, the movie would be like 10 minutes, right? (laughs) It'd be over. Wouldn't be much of a movie. (laughs) So Jesus doesn't save us so we can just learn to behave better. He wants us to wake up to the reality of who we really are, who he created us to be. And he wants us to also realize the authority that we have in Christ over the powers of darkness. You can be the person who brings that authority of Christ into the dark places in this world. You can be the man or woman of God that the enemy fears because you pray with the authority in the name of Jesus, right? And you pray using the word of God. Those are two things the enemy doesn't like. Praying in the name of Jesus, praying with the word of God. 
So there's something here I want to point out. As a believer, not only is God restoring your original glory, not only has he given you authority over the powers of darkness, salvation in Christ always, always includes a call to ministry. Every follower of Jesus is called, gifted, authorized, and commanded to be a minister. Okay? God has uniquely shaped each individual for a specific ministry. God has given all of his children gifts that can be developed and that can be used for his holy purposes. Right? Everyone has something to offer. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minister. If you can hear my voice and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minister. Okay? So if you are a minister, then what is my role as a pastor? Okay? Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The equipping of people for ministry is our primary role as your pastors. The task of the pastoral team here at Life Church is to oversee the activation, the training, and the development of people into ministry. So one of the best examples of this in Scripture is Jesus and Peter. Right? When Jesus called Peter, his name was Simon. But Jesus changed his name to Peter. The Greek word is Petros, which means stone. His name in Aramaic was Cephas, which means rock. Why would Jesus call him that? Was Peter like a rock? Not really. Peter was pretty emotional and unstable. He spoke without thinking. Many times he'd say things or he'd ask questions that he would later regret. One time he stated quite proudly that he would never deny Jesus. And yet right after that, he denied Jesus three times. Jesus did not call Peter rock because he was one. He called Peter rock because that's what he was going to become. I call it prophetically seeing the potential in people. Okay. Jesus saw the prophetic potential in, of what Peter would become, knowing that he would become a rock. And yet it didn't happen overnight. It took a while. So when a sculptor looks at a stone, he doesn't see the ugly and the dirty, misshapen, uh, rock that's in front of him. Rather, he sees in his mind's eye 
the finished work. And he keeps that vision in his mind as he chisels away the excess stone and brings that image into reality. This is what happened with Peter. Jesus called him, Jesus discipled him, and Jesus equipped him. And then Peter became a great leader in the church. So much so that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. The role of the pastors in the church, subsequently, the role of leaders in the church as well, is not just to do ministry, but it is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That ministry could be within the church, it might be outside of the church. Uh, We are called to equip the saints for whatever ministry that they are called to. Now, now a lot of churches um, have the paradigm that the pastor is the minister, the one that does all the ministry. And the people in the church are the recipients of that ministry, the spectators, the consumers. That is not the model that God created, that he designed. It's unhealthy, and it will make the whole church unhealthy. Now, some of the reasons that this could happen, uh, maybe it's the pastor's fault, right? Maybe, perhaps the pastor wants to be the center of attention all the time. Maybe he or she has a savior complex. Maybe he believes that he can do it better than anyone else can. Maybe he's worried about losing control. Maybe he feels like he needs to prove that he's somehow earning his paycheck. A lot of pastors simply don't know that they're supposed to equip others, or they they just don't know how. So when I first read the announcement uh, for this senior pastor position, that Ephesians 4 scripture we just read about equipping the saints was right there, front and center in the job announcement. I saw that, and literally this is what I thought. I was like, well that's cool. They already have a sense of what it will take to go to the next level as a church. It's developing an equipping culture where everyone is discovering their unique gifts and calling in the kingdom and walking that out. Again, in a lot of small churches, the mindset is that the pastor is paid, is a paid hired hand, the one who is hired to do all the ministry. It's a sort of mindset of, well, well, that's what we pay you for. That's one reason why those churches stay small and they don't reach anyone new. It's another reason why pastors often end up burning out. Do you know the, uh, the average tenure of a pastor is two years? Isn't that crazy? 
Like you think of all the time it takes to prepare to get educated to become a pastor and then the average one lasts two years. So when I went on staff at my last church in 2007, uh, the church was running about 1,200 average weekend attendance at the time. And my boss told me this. Um, he said, Roger, I am not hiring you to do ministry. He said, if you do ministry and you work really, really hard, uh, you might impact 200 people. And the rest of them won't even know who you are. I'm hiring you to activate, to train, to develop other people to do ministry. He said, if you do that well, the church will continue to grow. Everyone will be serving in their sweet spot, in their giftedness, and you won't burn out. And that's what I did. Uh, we grew to um, about 3,000 in the average weekend attendance during my tenure there. In terms of small groups, uh, during the normal year, we had about 300 small groups with about 2,000 people in them. And then uh, once a year, we would do these big church-wide small group series. Uh, and, and during those times, we would bump up to having about 600 small groups with about 3,600 people in them. 3,600, that's 20% more than our average weekend attendance. The only way that is possible is by having an equipping mindset and building an equipping culture. If I had tried to do that all myself, I would have been divorced or dead uh, before I could personally pastor all those people. So let's go back to Jesus and what he modeled. I think it's good uh, to look at how Jesus did things, right? Because he was the, he was the model, the perfect model. Okay, so you look at Jesus, and being the son of God, he could have always been the center of attention, and yet he equipped his disciples and gave them important responsibilities. Jesus could do the work better than any of them, but he equipped the disciples to do the work, and he sent them out two by two, right? So one of the examples I want to point out to you, sometimes we miss this, one of the examples was doing baptisms. He didn't do them. The disciples did them. Okay, John 4, 2. It literally says, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Jesus is the son of God, right? All authority and power belong to him, and yet he gave this job to his disciples. Why? To equip them. To model that a leader shouldn't do everything himself. Jesus was going to leave, right? He was going to ascend. And he had to train up the disciples to do the work. Every Christian leader should be in the process of continually working themselves out of a job. The goal of a leader should be training up others to take our place for when God calls us to take the next step in his plan for us, right? So I've been here for six weeks now, and uh, I've been doing training with the pastors uh, every Tuesday afternoon. 
And so two coaching questions I've been asking them are these. The first is, if God suddenly doubled the number of people in the church and in your ministries tomorrow, would you have the leadership infrastructure and the systems in place to handle it? And the second question is, if you suddenly died tonight, would the ministries that you oversee decline, plateau, or grow without you? Both of these are equipping questions that get you thinking with an equipping mindset. I've seen a lot of pastors and a lot of churches who they're praying to reach people for Jesus, but they don't develop enough leaders and they don't develop the, the, the necessary systems to pastor and disciple all those people if, if, if God did bring those people. If you pray to catch more fish and God suddenly brings the fish, you won't catch them. Not until you build a bigger net. Right? Jesus equipped the disciples for the work of ministry. And if he hadn't, they would have had no idea what to do after he left. Not just pastors, but every leader at Life Church should intentionally be developing others and intentionally reproducing themselves. Jesus did it. Paul did it. This is Jesus' kingdom strategy. Right? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Some of you have this memorized. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this strategy is not a strategy just for linear growth. It is a strategy for exponential growth. Multiplication rather than addition. So what does it look like when we do what I'm talking about? Like, it's like, Okay, Roger, give me a picture. What does this look like? What does it look like when we walk in our identity in Christ, when we walk in the authority of Christ, and we accept Christ's commandment to go and make disciples? What can we accomplish by doing this? Okay, so I talked a, a bit earlier about the number of small groups we had in my last church. But the really cool thing were the uh, the cool God stories that came out of those. So one year we were doing a church-wide series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? So it's not like some, you know, not one of the easier books. So we, we did one on the book of Ecclesiastes and we called it Satisfied. So we do these church-wide series is where we'd encourage everyone to facilitate a small group and uh, sure, they could invite their Christian friends, but we really encourage them to reach out and invite their unchurched friends as well. And we give them everything they needed to do it. We would uh, put together, we had, they had weekly small group study questions, uh, a DVD with like, um, like 10 to 15 minute uh, video to show in their group each week. 
daily devotionals. We even had our worship team put together a worship CD um, where they, they, wrote, they wrote some of the songs, they recorded them, uh, and they put them together for groups to use. So the idea was that you would hear the sermon on the weekend, uh, you do the devotionals each day, do, uh, and then they gather in their small groups, they do like an icebreaker kind of thing, they'd watch the video, uh, they'd have a discussion, they'd worship, they'd pray. So there are a lot of cool stories that came out of this, but in my opinion, uh, here's one of the coolest. So there was a lady in our church who had several friends um, who danced at a club. They were strippers. She asked them if they, want, if they wanted to do a satisfied group with her. They said, well, it must have been Holy Spirit doing this. They said, sure, but would it be okay if they did it at the club right before their shift started? You know, it's be convenient. So that's when they did it. And they had a few other girls join them. So picture this, all right? So this woman and these strippers are watching a small group video of our senior pastor each week in the strip club, and he's teaching on Ecclesiastes. They're discussing it. They're praying. I don't know if they did worship, but by the end of the study, over half the girls quit their jobs. Now, I found out later uh, that one of my wife's coworkers, who does what she does, but at another of the community college campuses, um, she runs a career center at her campus, just like my wife does at hers. She worked with one of these women, helped her <laughs> write her resume so that she could get a different job. Now, think of this. These women that are women that none of us on staff would have been ever able to reach. Like, never. But this woman in the church could reach them. I mean, our staff did a ton of work behind the scenes to make it possible for this lady to do what she did. I mean, we literally spent a whole year like planning and preparing and putting stuff together but this is exactly what I'm talking about. Our role as pastors at Life Church is to equip you to walk out your calling in ministry. So, some homework. This week, I want you to think and pray about two questions. Okay? What ministry am I called to? You, and who am I called to reach? So that ministry, again, might be in the church. It might be outside the church. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be in your workplace. Um, perhaps it's tied to some pain that you've gone through. You want to help others who are going through that, or you want to help prevent others from having to go through that. Maybe you have a heart for kids or teens or the elderly or shut-ins or people with disabilities or addicts 
or single moms, people dealing with grief. Maybe you want to help with people's marriages. Maybe you want to go visit people in the hospital. Maybe you want to help out with, uh, in an inner healing ministry. That's coming. I prayed about it. The Lord's pretty clear. That's one of the first things I'm supposed to work on. Uh, or maybe you want to help people with their finances. That's coming too. Maybe you want to help people grow spiritually. Maybe you want to help lead a small group. Maybe you want to be a mentor. Maybe you have come out of the bondage of religiousness and legalism and you want to teach people about what it's like to live under the covenant of grace instead of the covenant of works. Maybe you want to find ways to love on our community and serve them. Maybe you are super passionate about the empowering, transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. And you want to be part of creating a culture at Life Church where, like, wherever we gather, like, there is freedom and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Okay? Maybe you can help us figure out how to take the ministry of the Holy Spirit out of these walls and into our community. Again, ask God and pray through those two questions. What ministry am I called to? And who am I called to reach? And then let one of us pastors know. You, we wanna, we'd love to sit across from you, hear your heart, hear your story, help you figure out what that looks like. You can email us, Facebook us, call the church, whatever. Okay? We want to equip you to walk in the freedom and the authority that God has given you and to walk out your calling in the kingdom of God. That's why I'm here. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you created us with original glory. That as followers of Jesus, you've given us the authority in Christ over the powers of darkness. We thank you that you've called each of us to some unique, particular ministry that you've served, you've reserved especially for us. Help us, God, to discover what that is and to walk that out. God, I pray you would speak to each person who's hearing this. Just give them a Holy Spirit nudge, letting them know what their next step should be to walk out their calling in the kingdom. God, I pray that each person hearing this would so fulfill the calling that you put on their life that at the end of their life they would hear you say well done good and faithful servant we pray that in Jesus name amen